Hi, this is Drew. What you're about to listen to uh, in this episode that I just finished recording with our very own Charlie and with Dr. Eric Herman from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis is an episode about Seminex uh, or the famous or infamous, if uh, depending on how you want to look at it, walkout from Concordia Seminary, which took place in the 1970s. Um, it is a, we recognize that it is a very sensitive issue that still uh, in some ways lives on with people who were connected to the event by one degree or another. Um, and so we, we want to just, we wanted to just have a good, honest and truthful discussion about it. Um, on that note though, this is less of a historical survey. Um, in order to do so, I feel like we would need to do multiple a whole series of the podcast on uh on on seminex and so uh because of that because we could not nearly get to every single aspect of this of this story and listeners will even notice we bring up names and things that you know we we give some detail on some of these people we bring up we don't with others um so we apologize that we just couldn't give a full picture um but if, if you're interested in a who's who and a what's what of the events and the chronology and just really the full story, we, we there's definitely resources we can point you to. Um, I'm going to put a sh- in the show notes. You'll see it'll be one of the first ones, uh, something to uh, scholar.csl.edu. Um, has a entire recorded video series of the class that our guest, Dr. Herman, taught on this walkout called uh, Controversy in the LCMS, an examination and analysis of the discord within the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod in the 1960s and 70s with attention to the doctrinal issues and church political developments of the Synod. Uh, There's a total of, um, I'm just counting them, It's, it's well over, like, you know, it's about 20 different, 20 videos of the recorded class, full recorded class sessions. And that's very interesting to watch. Um, other resources, we're going to list in the show notes, books like Frederick Danker's No Room in the Brotherhood, uh, books like uh, Power Politics in the Missouri Synod by James Berkey, uh, Seminary in Crisis by Paul Zimmerman. You, you will, you'll hear in the commentary on our episode that we, you know, it's hard to find a good book <laughs> and really any resource on it because this is such a polarizing topic and um, the, the biases are present in wherever you want to look for it. But I do uh, give huge thanks to Dr. Herman for being on and for honestly, you know, uh, looking back at this, you know, as, you know, all three of us from a later generation, you know, a little bit distant from that moment and, and definitely out of the full heat of the moment, even though there's still some obviously emotions stirred from it. Uh, to be able to look back and, and, to, and to just have some good, honest discussion um, about it. I also, I, I do want to add before we start, the uh, Herman Otten, who I brought up, um, not to con- he's not to be confused, I think, with a current... Uh, South Dakota, I think he's either in the House of Reps or a senator, but someone who holds public office in South Dakota named Herman Otten. That is not the Herman Otten that we mentioned in this episode. So um, I don't know if, you know, we have some listeners from South Dakota, according to my data, but <laughs> so it's not about you, man, if you're, uh, <laughs> if you listen to Dell protests. So, but we do enjoy you. Uh, we hope you enjoy this episode. You know, for people who are a little bit more familiar with the with the events and how they transpired, 
Um, it'll come as more easier listening, um, and, and so we apologize for those who may feel a little bit lost. Um, but, but basically, we just, you know, we, we tried to give a little bit of a historical intro of uh, the concerns that were going on at a, at a seminary, a uh, seminary which has survived and is uh, very strong, one of the largest Lutheran seminaries today, but, you know, unfortunately had this controversy and this walkout in the 1970s and some of the basic concerns that led to it. Um, and so we, we hope you enjoy. And, and so uh, with, with, uh, with all that said, I hope you enjoy the episode. We'll be starting in a moment. God bless. Hello, Dr. Eric Herman joins us today, someone we've been wanting to get on the podcast as he is one of the top scholars on the Reformation and on Martin Luther in North America and really internationally. Uh, but he's not talking about Luther or the Reformation so much today. We'll be interviewing him about a chapter in relatively recent Lutheran history here in America involving uh, controversy, protests, and a walkout at a Lutheran seminary, Concordia St. Louis, in the 1970s. Yes, that's Seminex for people who are more familiar with that. Uh, this is an event that made national news at the time and was really a crucial moment in Lutheran history uh, in, in America. As Lutherans in the U.S., whether they belong to the Missouri Synod or the ELCA or even the NALC and LCMC, we could add, are still living with this in, in certain ways. This moment shaped Lutheran history uh, ever since. It's a sad story to be frank, but also a story that still there are a couple people living with the wounds of it on all sides. So we want to be sensitive to that, but also just have an honest and truthful discussion about it. It's a complicated issue, but there's and there's layers and layers upon of the story, but we are definitely not, and we're definitely not going to get all, into all that today, but um. So uh, Dr. Herman joins us. He, he has taught courses uh, on Concordia Seminex, the topic we're talking about, at uh, Concordia St. Louis, where he has been uh, assistant professor of historical theology. Uh, he's been on faculty there since 2005. He's also the director of the Center for Reformation Research there. And, but he's lectured at universities and institutes around the world. Uh, he has a wide array of interests, uh, but but a lot of it focused on uh, medieval and Reformation history and uh, interpretations of Luther uh, and American Lutheranism. And so he is a guy, uh, Charlie and I, who's with us today. We would love to, well, I think Charlie had, Charlie studied with him. So they have a history. Uh, we, we could maybe, I would love to study, do a course under you. Maybe we can get you over to ILT. I don't know. Uh, oh, that'd be fun. Dr. That'd be great. I actually did a class with Dr. Kolb uh, at ILT, which was awesome. So, uh, Excellent. Well, I'm glad to be here with you guys. This yeah, great. thank you. Awesome. Um, and so today we're talking about Seminex, and uh, I'm going to ask you, Dr. Herman, just kind of give us a, you know, the paragraph summary before we really dig in uh, a little bit of what Seminex, uh, you know, uh, synopsis, if you will, and then, um, you know, 
and also why you have a personal interest. I mean, obviously you're at Concordia and stuff, but why you, why you took an interest in it enough to at least teach a class on it. Sure. Well, let me just start with a quick synopsis and then I'll, I'll kind of tell you why we, we started doing a course on that. Um, so uh, the, the event you're referring to Seminex or the walkout is basically the culmination of a conflict in, um, in American Lutheranism that really focused uh, itself on Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, and the Lutheran Church, uh, Missouri Synod. Uh, and it, uh, I think probably if, if you Google it or you read about it, you see that it, it seems to be part of um, what many call the battle for the Bible uh, that was uh, between progressive, liberal, and, and conservative and fundamentalist Christians that were happening throughout America at different points in the 20th century in particular. So it came home uh, uh, on uh, the LCMS and at Concordia Seminary in particular. And what happened <clears throat> was uh, in 1974, um, the, uh, because of uh, charges of teaching, um, false teaching, especially with respect to the, the doctrine of the scriptures uh, and its reliability, its inerrancy, those kinds of things. And we can talk more in detail about that. But basically, the president of the seminary was suspended. And um, 40 out of 45 faculty um, uh, stopped teaching classes. They did a, a sit-out, a moratorium on classes. Majority of the student body also did a moratorium. Um, so from January to mid-February, uh, there was no teaching going on at the seminary. There's this huge sort of public conflict. And then um, and then in February 1974, uh, the uh, they they walked out <clears throat> and uh, they were in breach of contract because they wouldn't teach classes anymore. And um, so uh, they were given an ultimatum to go back to class and follow their contract or uh, or be fired. And they chose to stage a, uh, a walkout, which consisted of the faculty and the students leaving Concordia Seminary and setting up a, a parallel seminary, which uh, they called Concordia Seminary in Exile. And they started first over at a couple of different schools in town, Eden uh, Theological Seminary and, and uh, St. Louis University. Um, and eventually they called themselves Christ Seminary Seminex. And uh, yeah, they, they left. It was only five professors in about... Um, Maybe 25 students of the graduating class remained. Um, and uh, it led to a pretty significant split in the church body. By this time, it become people had already taken sides throughout the throughout our church body. And um, it led to congregations leaving. And um, eventually it led to a later merger. This this group of faculty and the people that were sort of behind this uh, this walkout. Um, were main, main players in the formation of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America in the 80s, which was the largest merger of Lutherans in America and the largest church body still to this day. So that's the, that's the fast story, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, but that's kind of what we're referring to is this, um, this walkout, this split, uh, and this parallel seminary that was formed uh, by the more liberal contingent um, at the seminary. It's hard to condense it into a paragraph. I know it's a, it's hard to put into a fast story for sure. Um, yeah. Charlie, uh, what, what, I know you're very interested in this and 
you've been reading about it a lot from what I take in the past few several months. So what's uh what led to your interest in it? Well, a uh, couple of things. One, uh, one is that I'm doing my doctoral work on hermeneutics and canon, both of which were uh, significant issues that were in play um, with the theology in the 60s that led to the walkout in 74. Um, also, it's kind of family history for me. It is for a lot of people in the Missouri Synod, but... Um, my wife um, had um, three uncles who were on the Concordia Seminary faculty in 1974. Uh, two walked out and one didn't. Um, when my when my wife's grandmother died about, I think it was six years ago, I was at the funeral and uh, just hanging out with some of the family the evening before and a member of the family I had not met before sees me over there and I'm wearing a Concordia Seminary hooded sweatshirt and he practically runs over to me and asks me why I'm wearing the sweatshirt and I said well you know I was a student there um, and uh, and then I was treated to um, his version of the walkout which took about an hour hour and a half and uh he was extremely angry about it, still took everything very personally. And at that point, it had been about 40 years. Um, but this was still a very, very present thing for him. And I think it is for a lot of people who were involved in it in, uh, in either way. So I kind of have, I mean, half of my interest is personal, half of it is uh, theological, but I I do find that uh, a lot of the issues that were being dealt with in those days, um, we still haven't resolved. Or in some cases, I think maybe the pendulum has gone too far in the other direction. Um, and so we, you know, this is kind of the, the air that we still breathe, um, at least for those of us who were aware of it and have you know, done any reading in it. Yeah, um, <clears throat> part of it kind of hits, I didn't realize when I first heard about it, I realized it a little bit later that the pastor of my grandparents' church uh, that they be they belonged to for like 60 years um, or about that, the pastor that was there for 28 years um, and uh for a lot, most of my lifetime, he was the pastor of my grandparents' church. He was uh, was at Concordia during the Seminex walkout, and he was actually one of the ones that stayed. He was of the minority of students who stayed, and um, I remember having some conversations about it with him. Uh, but my my interest in Seminex, uh, it, was, it was during my first year of seminary because I, I basically went to an ELCA seminary, going to Bexley Hall Episcopal uh, at the time was was fully uh, shared campus and, and uh, uh, dormitories and everything with Trinity Lutheran in Columbus. And um, I remember seeing uh, there was a bookshelf at at Trinity of uh, I mean, they had books, they had all kinds of books there. They actually actually have a really impressive library. but. Um, they had a few books on like Missouri Synod and stuff. I remember like just out of curiosity, I didn't know, you know, 
much about uh, you know my original denomination I belonged to. I didn't know much about the denominational history, and so I they had a few books on it, and I remember checking out two of them. Um, one was a uh, seminary in crisis by Paul Zimmerman. And the other was uh, the James Berkey book on uh, our politics, Missouri Synod. So, which was, was two different sides that you could save the spectrum on that, but it just blew my mind, but it sort of, it, it made, um, it made sense though, because knowing the story of the walkout or becoming aware of it, uh, it, de- it filled in some gaps for me, I think, uh, because I, um, was seemed to be, you know, obviously there were hard, there's hard feelings between LCMS and ELCA. There, there always has been, but it, it didn't make like the gravity of it didn't make as much sense until I, I, I realized uh, the, this, the significance of this event and that this event was an actual thing. Um, my, uh, so, I mean, I thought it was, uh, you know, and interestingly Lutheranism in North America, um, while having many uh, communicants, whether in LCMS or ELCA are, you know, they're concentrated in, in uh, upper Midwest states. And, uh, and I feel like if you belong to any sizable uh, LCMS or ELCA church, or not even necessarily sizable, but, or any, especially any LCMS school, like the school I went to up through eighth grade, um, you'll have pastors or teachers or principals who have like a relative who may have been involved in like this 1970s Lutheran war. You know, like it, it's, I feel like you're almost like only separated by a couple degrees in the world of American Lutheranism um, from this pivotal chapter. And so it was really interesting um, and kind of, you know, powerful for me to, to read about all this stuff. But, um, but anyways, um, I wanted to bring up for, I wanted to get Dr. Herman's uh, thoughts on this. Uh, you know, we mentioned ILT earlier and Robert, uh, Robert Bene, who's, uh, you know, teaches, um, teaches uh, ethics at ILT and other theology courses. He uh, wrote an article about um, the, called the trials of American Lutheranism for, for first things. And, uh, you know, in it, he basically, he he tackles like a lot of the issues that our Lutherans are, um, you know, Lutherans have been battling each other over. And he brings up that, uh, you know, he doesn't outright dismiss the book by Berkey. He says that Berkey demonstrates that, quote, conservatives in the LCMS were deeply affected and motivated by the political and cultural upheaval of the 60s. Um, they seem to have been driven as much by conservative political and cultural commitments as by theological concerns. Um, But nevertheless, he says, quote, a concern for biblical and theological liberalism did underlay the simmering discontent many Missourians had for years with Concordia Seminary. Some of the faculty indeed promoted gospel reductionism, which is the teaching that justification is the only doctrine that finally matters, as well as an understanding of scripture strongly influenced by historical critical assumptions. Um, He also says, you know, the liberals were, you know, strategically uh, inept. Um, they, they, he says they were swept up, quote, swept up in the romantic allure of Exodus when they might have better employed the gritty tactic of making Preuss, who was the president of the Senate at the time, come after them one by one. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it seemed to me, I don't know if you've all familiar, if you've read that article or if you're familiar with it, but it, my issue... Um, 
you know, the Zimmerman, well, the Zimmerman book, which I, I found to be very informative, as well as the Berkey book, which I think uh, laid a lot of the even pre-ground with Herman Otten. I found both of those books helpful to, to some extent, but I could clearly see, and I would say especially more in the Berkey book, um, with the, the rhetoric in it, I guess you could say just like, okay, like um, it, it didn't, there was there they were there was polemics in both both works I thought and it seems to me that there's a, there is no like objective neutral uh, at least from like an outsider perspective because hopefully I can kind of be the outsider here being an Episcopal priest um, on the Seminex event you know I don't know what what do you think of the Bene uh, what Bene trying to assess the situation <laughs> seeing the faults on both sides but also the concerns that both sides would have. Yeah, I think, I mean, with Benet, just using the, looking at the Berkey book in particular, that I think he may be a little bit more narrow in his scope on that. He's sort of assessing a book too, and a, a particular new read of the thing. Um, I mean, let me first say that uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of an outsider too. I have no family history connected with this event um, or with Missouri Senate. My, my, both of my parents immigrated in, from, they were refugees from World War II and came over here in the 50s. So I'm I'm a, I'm a member of the LCMS uh, first and foremost because they retained German services for a while and that's kind of why I ended <laughs> up in it. Um, so, uh, but what I think is what Charlie is pointing out is that the, the story isn't over. There are still, first of all, people alive who are still very hurt by an event. So there's a big pastoral care issue <clears throat> involved in that. And so when I teach this course for students part of it is just letting them know that when they wear their concordia seminary sweatshirt hoodie uh and someone makes a beeline to them and <laughs> they don't know and they don't know why at least they know why a little bit now um but also i think and this is where ben is kind of getting at thing and even berkey's trying to do this too is to try to understand the role that um uh the the solution to our problem at that point which was a political solution we never resolved it theologically, but we uh, resolved it largely politically. Um, well, that that's still with us, you know, this kind of political geist, this way of sort of dealing with one another. But but Benny was absolutely right. I mean, the, the saying was that um, the conservatives couldn't preach and the liberals couldn't count um, the the uh, the. The guys wa who walked out thought the church would go with them. They thought they had a much deeper uh, 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 amount of support throughout the church. And what they did in, in, in leaving is they really, um, uh, just as Benny said, there was no hard work to be done. Uh, I, don't think the, I don't think President Preuss, who knew there was problems at the seminary, uh, knew ultimately how long it was going to take to fix those problems. And then overnight, they left. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, and so, um, yeah, it was they were they were very um, especially in those years. The professors at the seminary and especially the president of the seminary was very um, uh, melodramatic and idealistic and um, uh, to the point that uh, they just they just couldn't even work with an institution. They couldn't even understand the idea that they had contracts um, because everything they were doing, you know, it got a little out of hand that way. Mm -hmm. But um, the particulars of the piece, I mean, th there's there's a lot of interesting 
aspects and layers to this story, uh, why we got to where we, why we got there, and um, and even uh, the influence that that group of people had on the subsequent churches. I think Benny is sitting a little bit as an outsider. He's in the ELCA, but he watched these people from the Missouri Synod come in and help create a church body that was uh, well was more liberal than any of the other uh, churches that were combining into it individually. Um, and it's largely the Missouri Synod seminary guys who left that really brought that sharp liberal bent into, into the ELCA. And to this day, there are e ELCA theologians who are kind of bitter about that, that their, their church body was kind of ruined by the Missouri Synod, um, at least from their perspective. So, right. And that's interesting. Cause, cause, um, you know, going to, uh, going to the, uh, in ELCA seminary, and I don't mean to like, uh, be very, you know, denigrate the seminary at all, but mm, no, I saw it kind of in, in, in the ELCA context. And there were some couple older faculty who had not been part of Seminex per se, but part of the seventies battles. Cause you know, the, all the Lutheran bodies were talking a lot more at one time. And, um, uh, you know, I, there was in the, so in like the seventies when, um, I think it was Dr. Martin Charlemagne who, uh, you know, you can fill more in on him later if you need, but he was basically stepped in to help lead the seminary, uh, Concordia seminary as it was, um, as you know, the, the, he was of the minority of faculty who stayed and one of his uh, concerns that he was seeing with this group of students at Concordia and all the, the ones who ended up leaving was he uh, basically said that, you know, the, 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 he listed 10 points and I'm not going to go through them all, but a couple stuck out to me because I, 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 I saw it very prevalent in so much of mainline Protestantism. I mean, I've been in the Episcopal church, but I've also been around, did some studies at Garrett seminary. So I've been around Methodists and, mm -hmm. uh, and I see it prevalent in so much mainline Protestantism, but I, I definitely saw this pronounced in the ELCA uh, seminary environment I was in. Uh, the same things that Dr. Charlemagne's talking about with uh, the students he observed at Concordia, the ones who ended up walking out. And he says these things were, quote, a kind of commitment to social action, which is not reflected sufficiently on the distinction between the kingdom of Christ and political structures. Yeah. Another was, quote, a deep cynicism on the part of many students to the significance of the theological task and, quote, uh, disturbing talk that is not that it is not really necessary to verbalize the gospel. I, I think that middle point, uh, the deep cynicism, I noticed there's a lot of students who didn't care about theology. And for me, it's like, OK, not everyone's destined to go to be like to get their PhD. I mean, not everyone. I mean, we need pastors anyways. We don't need scholars, right? Well, no offense, Dr. Herman or Charlie or me, but it's like we don't, uh, you know, uh, scholar, we need scholars, I should say, I, but we, we need pastors. So it's not like, you know, theology, but so theology is not as I see it. It's not so much like it, it can turn into a highly intellectual heady exercise, but um, just the basic understanding and appreciation of it and know that whenever you step into the pulpit and bring the good news from scripture to the ears of people this is theology right 
And theology is what undergirds and binds um, all we proclaim and believe, right? So theology is a good thing, right? And I just didn't see, I saw just a lot of, yeah, I guess the cynicism Charlemagne talks about seeing in the 70s, I saw it kind of in my own environment. Like people just didn't care. It was almost, um, and and if you did like, if you if if theology was ever brought up, it was like, they're just very flippant with the way we, you know, um, it was almost like nothing was worth being uh, taken seriously. Um, you know, I don't know. Does that, it, it seems like I saw a lot of that. Like we're still like the, this, this culture we have seen in a lot of mainline Protestantism. Um, I, I do think it's a, it was a, a shift away from, I mean, when you say theology, I would say sort of theology that's, that's interested in things like doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, so they thought, them, I mean, they certainly were interested in theology, but theology is primarily in terms of action, uh, gospel in terms of a, a kind of a verb, right? You sort of do the gospel, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is, um, and, and I, you can understand why this is the case. And, and as you more, as you attend to the modern context in which the basis for doctrine or traditional doctrines are being eroded, right? Um, belief in, in, uh, in doctrine of creation or the resurrection or any of those sorts of things that seem to not coincide with, you know, modern views of the world. Doctrine, uh, you, you're sort of either challenged uh, to defend doctrine or pivot and emphasize another facet of the church's life, which doesn't lean heavily into doctrine, which is its life of, of piety and, and uh, social, social uh, uh, care for the needy. And, um, you know, when you look at the 60s and 70s, it was such an upheaval in terms of um, questions of justice and social activism. Mm -hmm. Um, All those things really merged together in a, in a, I I don't know if it was a fortunate way, but just a felicitous way in the sense that um, uh, it wasn't like people sat around in their office and decided to de-emphasize doctrine and now let's redefine things in terms of social activism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as doctrine and traditional doctrines became more and more problematic through modern theology and modern approaches to scripture, um, uh, people started thinking, well, instead of debating uh, about uh, the nature of the Trinity or the historicity of Adam and Eve, maybe we should just spend more of our time trying to fight uh, against um, racism and uh, and against war and uh, try to feed people that are hungry throughout the world. And so all of a sudden, that becomes kind of the new language of the gospel, the new language of theology. Yeah. So, I- um, when I uh, <clears throat> when I read this letter from Charlemagne that you referenced a few minutes ago, Drew, um, I mean, this is a letter that kind of it probably started the investigation. He wrote it to the president of Synod and said, "Hey, you know, there's stuff here going on that you might want to check out." Um, I remember when I first read this letter, which was probably oh, a few years ago, um, what struck me about it was all of this is still present. All, all of this stuff that Charlemagne is concerned about is still present in the Missouri Senate. So, um, you know, I think this social action thing is a is a perfect example of it. In the 70s, it was, um, you know, let's make sure that we 
you know, protest against the Vietnam War and uh, feed the hungry, you know, but within a couple of years of the walkout, it was also already moving into um, uh, the gay rights movement. You had an openly, openly gay faculty member at Seminex who um, later admitted that this didn't start when he was at Seminex. Um, but if you if you go to the um, if you go to the present, then what you can see is that um, we have, have people in the Missouri Senate now um, who are on the other side of things, doing the same sorts of things that Charlemagne was concerned about. What Charlemagne said is um, he was concerned about a kind of commitment to social action which has not reflected sufficiently on the distinction made by our Lutheran confessions between the kingdom of Christ and political structures. Yeah. And these days in the Missouri Senate, you can be told that you're not a faithful pastor if you aren't um, marching in the pro-life march, going to the state legislature and arguing against the, you know, the woke legislation um, and, you know, these sorts of social action um, are taking the place of the proclamation of the gospel. And so you can have a guy who um, is in his parish uh, preaching and teaching the word of God, applying it to the lives of their people. Uh, but if they are not engaging in certain kinds of political activity, um, they're a disgrace to the office they hold. Um, I've had this accusation leveled against me, and so I mean we're now um, we're now forty eight years since the walkout, and we haven't learned much. Yeah, uh, because as as you said as you said a few minutes ago, Eric, uh, we solved it politically, but we didn't solve it theologically. Well, and Charlie, I think you pointing out, I mean, just for our hearers, the, the big difference is, uh, is not the, the blurring of uh, uh, the, the identity and mission of the church and uh, work in politics. Um, it's the, um, it's which side of the fence you're on, right? I mean, so you, you basically had a, a more progressive social activism that was, um, was interpreted in theological terms in the 60s and 70s and now it's um what we would say is kind of the conservative evangelical right uh acum. and that is uh but ism is and the blurring is the same as what you're concerned with and i think that's that's probably true um so uh i don't know drew would it be helpful just to talk um uh you know there's there's all sorts of facets here i could give it a little bit more on the like what led uh, to the particular um, form of um, liberalism at the seminary, but yeah, perhaps right. that, that's not the direction you want to go. Well, I mean, why don't we start there? Yeah. Well, we're not starting. Yeah. So I'll, I'll keep it. I'll keep it short. But um, uh, I would I put it this way, just for how the Missouri Synod was sort of situated. Missouri Synod was very skeptical. Of, of academic institutions uh, because so many of them had been taken over uh, by, uh, by the tent of modern theology in his the 19th century. 
uh, sort of sits behind a little bit of our of our identity in leaving Germany and coming here. Um, and, and in fact, they were very skeptical of of even our own faculty going to academic institutions and getting uh, graduate degrees or earned PhDs. There were very few of our faculty in the early 20th century that had PhDs. And when they did, they were kind of criticized. Mm -hmm. um, the, one of the big turning points for us as a church body was after World War II, um, we uh, hosted in, in 1949 um, a conference in Germany uh, at, a, uh, at a resort area there called Bad Ball to really just reconnect with a lot of German Lutherans who had been through the war and kind of show our ecclesial solidarity, I suppose. Um, and uh, so we had these, in, so we ended up creating these theological conferences there. And um, all of the, all of the theologians in Germany in the uh, late forties, if you can imagine, uh, if you've read any theology in the 20th century, we're talking about big heavy hitters people who studied under Karl Barth and uh, Werner Ehlert's there and all sorts of other folks. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we just encountered uh, a very different Lutheranism, a very different view of our own confessions of the scholarship of understanding of Martin Luther. And we were deeply impressed with the, with the level of scholarship. We had been out of the loop uh, for um, <laughs> Martin Charlemagne wrote a little, uh, a little uh, observer once where he made this in interesting uh, observation about the seminary that he said that in 19 from 1917 to 1945 the library of concordia seminary st louis bought no german books wow which i thought which i thought was remarkable and uh and so my colleague and i went and checked and sure enough we looked at the library records and it was basically true um now, if you can imagine, now I there were, I don't think there was any strategy behind it except that we had become an English-speaking church and we needed to bolster our English books in the library. But if you can imagine a time uh, in the history of uh, theology in the 20th century, a time where you wouldn't want to miss what's going on uh, in Germany, uh, exactly. that would be the time, right? right? So when we re-engage that and re-encounter it, we come back and... Um, and a lot of these professors, including Martin Charlemagne and others, uh, say, go to Germany, study under these folks. And um, we just get caught up and also kind of enamored uh, with the level of scholarship that's going on over there without really any guideposts, without anybody to help uh, navigate this. We're a little bit like kids in a candy store. Yeah. And they come back with an enormous amount of expertise enormous amount of confidence and arrogance and um and that's sort of the beginnings where the church starts realizing you know not just in the 70s but already in the 50s that our profs are saying weird stuff about about the scriptures and about uh, doctrine and um and it just takes a long time for the church finally to deal with it yeah yeah that is a lot going on in that in that period i mean i just think of like you know, a lot of like Lutheran churches in America started to anglicize, especially after World War One. But it's especially after World War One where you see the Bardian Revolution, and I mean, in, in a way, Germans already kind of dealt with the, you know, I guess the liberal theology of their day, the the cultural Protestantism, if you will, and um, right, 
in, in Bart's very much a pushback against that, going back to see how God, God in his word, how the scripture can speak to us and how the, you know, the historical critics uh, are, are, you know, they're, they're, they can't really, they, they look at the Bible like it's a rune to be deciphered. Um, have we completely lost faith that God can speak across time and ages and across the complicated redactional process that could, that may very well may have put the Bible together. You still think God can't talk to us through that. That was kind of, you know, kind of summing up Bart's yep. argument. Um, right. But, um, and sorry, my dogs keep barking here. Uh, but uh, kind of going into, I guess this is a good, you know, this kind of can segue into historical criticism or higher criticism um i mean i i think most of our listeners basically know what it is i mean it's it's nothing new by any means and and anyone who reads theology and, and gets into theological discussion comes across you know obviously that uh people have uh different levels of uh of, of how they view maybe historic historicity of certain aspects of scripture um and everything and so how did um how did that kind of come into play concordia and what were some of the um what did it create there the uh the the principles of historical criticism kind of being brought in now from modern theology into concordia seminary yeah i think um the uh it started fairly early then after bob ball in the 50s and uh, first of all, it's just <clears throat> there was a sense in which we're, we're just giving a better attention to the historic, the historical context of the scriptures themselves, right? Yes. And um, the historical character of the scriptures. Um, the difficulty is you start, uh, you start asking, uh, like, so I'm a historian, and so I practice historical criticism on all the things that I work with. Um, and it's the criticism part, it's not the history part that's the, the key element here, where you actually look at sources and um, cross-examine them because they may not be what they appear to be on the surface. They're, how they came to be or what they're trying to do uh, might actually uh, be running in a very different direction than what the text actually says. Um, and so it's that that notion of a critical use of doubt that's applied to a text that you also at the same time says is normative uh, and even revelation. Um, there, there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of logical and philosophical problems with that, not to mention hermeneutical ones. Um, I think the way it first started in the Missouri Senate is a sense to try to uh, face honestly some of the difficulties in the scriptures, right? Um, uh, where things don't seem to harmonize well. What do we mean when we say that the scriptures are factually correct, that they are inerrant? And um, Martin Charlemagne was one of the first guys to look at that and, um, and raise the question. And where he wanted to take people is to a place where you don't want to put a false or alien set of standards on the scriptures that make you, that cause more problems than you need. Um, so he looks at things like, uh, Stephen's speech in Acts and uh, how many years he uses that he uh, enumerates when he counts the, uh, the story of uh, ancient Israel and how that doesn't match the way Moses counts it. So, so who's right? Is that an error that we have to sort of account for or try to harmonize or what is that? And uh, really what he wanted to do was say, 
uh, he wanted to help people interpret the Bible better. But what people heard, because he said it, is that the Bible is full of mistakes and errors. And that caused, that um, was just too provocative. And I think, I think a lot of professors enjoyed the provocateur uh, posture. And so instead of raising questions that help people read the Bible better um, and to bring them closer to their understanding of the inerrancy and, and infallibility of the scripture, they caused people to be afraid. Uh, and, um, and of course they leaned into that, they leaned into that and, uh, eventually they really did go down the road of, um, of dismissing huge swaths of scripture as revelation or normative. Um, and, uh, yeah, just focused on things. We well, mentioned gospel reductionism focused on very narrow ideas that were the only normative things in the scriptures and everything else could be, uh, massaged or, um, or, um, a critiqued, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Sorry, Charlie, I saw your thing light up. Are you saying something? Maybe um, Charlie's on mute. Well, I, I was thinking about some things. I didn't actually have anything to say at the moment, but now that you've invited me to that, well, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, I... First uh, mistake, Drew. I, <laughs> I, I was thinking a, a little bit about, um, about Charlemagne um, and the you know, the huge difference you see between, say, 1961 to 1963, Martin Charlemagne, and 1974, Martin Charlemagne, uh, because you can read these papers. He, he co-wrote one with Horace Hamel, which um, talks about the proper use of the historical critical method in reading the scriptures. And... And it kind of goes the way that, that you were going, uh, Dr. Herman. It basically says, hey, let's not, let's not uh, say too much. That's, you know, let's hold our horses on this and try to be careful about what we say that the scriptures say. But then, you know, by the time you're at the end of this little nine-page essay, it's saying that um, actually when the Bible was being written, um, you could emphasize the truth of something by saying that it was actually false. And so by the time you get there, you know, one begins to wonder, well, what is true? What is false? What do these things even mean in this essay? And then, you know, Charlemagne's next, next essay is the famous one on inerrancy where he, he says that the book of God's truth contains errors. And, uh, but by the time, uh, you know, you're in the early 70s, um, Charlemagne doesn't seem to be talking this way at all. Um, he seems to be speaking kind of in the way that your standard Missouri Synod Lutheran would want their pastor to talk. Um, I remember, maybe, I don't remember if you were there when, when Dr. Bells told this story to me. Eric, but um, Dr. Bells has a story where he's in class and uh, they ask the professor what the meaning of the story of the feeding of five th the 5,000 is. And the professor says, well, you know, uh, this boy had brought his lunch with him 
and uh, he had the, you know, the five loaves and the two fish, and he decided that he would share his lunch with the people around him, and this inspired everyone else who was there to share their lunch, and so even those who didn't have a lunch ended up being fed, and that's the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. So then uh, he and a few of his classmates, their next class is with Dr. Charlemagne. And they say, Dr. Charlemagne, what's the meaning of the, you know, the feeding of the 5,000? And he says, oh, it's, it's uh, that uh, Jesus loves his people and he provides for all of our needs. And so when he recognizes that these people are going to, to starve, um, he miraculously multiplies the loaves and the fishes and uh, provides for them from his abundance, you know, to the degree that there's even all of these baskets left over. And uh, and Dr. Bell's, you know, ends the story by saying, we thought those things were a little different from one another. Uh, and uh, it kind of showed that, you know, how stark things were um, in in a couple of years uh, right before the walkout. Yeah, I think one of the, you know, what's interesting is, um, and you're referring to also a change in the role of Charlemagne, that's probably getting us a little too deep into the weeds of this story. Uh, but your your point about there actually being a real theological difference, it wasn't just a political problem. It wasn't just that some people were uh, wanting to, uh, to march uh, at Selma and other people didn't, um, that people really did disagree uh, about whether or not the Bible was primarily a record of human religious consciousness or it was uh, revelation in uh, kind of the primary sense of the word. Um, and if you're gonna if you're gonna affirm formally that it's that it is a it is the word of God um, and that it is revelation, uh, how that scripture comes into being and redaction and editors, there's all sorts of room for trying to sort those kinds of things out. But you can't um, also take a, a, the approach um, that uh, the Bible is just a record of religious human consciousness. Then you then you actually have a very different hermeneutic that you're using. And um, yeah, you're, you're sort of, that's where we're at. And we just didn't, uh, we didn't want to talk about it. Uh, the problem... Missouri Senate. The problem in the Missouri Senate uh, was that uh, uh, people would ask what's happening, and uh, the answer was nothing. We're doing just fine. And so, I, one of the things I want to teach the students, and this is probably uh, it's it's important for the Missouri Senate Lutherans, but I think it's important for everybody. Um, the uh, our church body set up our structure in such a way that we said that uh, the only um, authority in our church was going to be the word of God in terms of doctrine and that even the synod uh, and theology professors and whatever really other important people in our church body um, that none of them actually had the authority to determine these sorts of things but only God's word and so the only way in which we exercise authority or find unity is that we have to convince each other we have to persuade one another on the basis of the scriptures. And um, if you don't want to do that, you can use politics um, and uh, you 
take the fast route, but what ends up happening is uh, you end up sort of not being church anymore. You end up being an organization that just sort of wins or loses. And um, I think one of the things that uh, folks forgot to do uh, in that period of time was to try to act like the church uh, and to try to come to, to listen to one another. And it didn't happen. Yeah. And I think, to, to, as you say that, I, I think like, I feel like a Seminex, a lot of people kind of got swept up in the in the middle. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, because it, it seemed like it was all just, it was polarized or it was presented as if there's people that are teaching very false, misleading things at the seminary and there's people that are standing their ground who are not. Um, and kind of just generally in a blanket statement saying is they're teaching historical criticism. Um, well, obviously, even if like no, th let's say historical criticism was not being taught at all at Concordia, you still would have had like diversity in theological thought, you know, that because theology is filled with, with nuance when you get really into the systematic hermeneutical, you know, I mean, obviously, it's like there's the joke even in the Missouri Synod, like you can get a few Lutherans together and they they all say a different thing on something like, like a healthy diversity, I guess, within the bounds of like um, orthodoxy. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think I think that was the big question was how much diversity is allowed, right? How much diversity? Right. It's not uh, that. But how wide can this umbrella be? Um, can you have mutually exclusive or mutually on fundamental issues? Uh, th that's that's sort of an interesting question. And, how you get, and, and if you do have them, uh, on what basis do you bring about resolution? And I think one of the positions was we shouldn't we should allow all these different positions to sort of coexist. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and that was that was probably it wasn't it wasn't kind of a weird um, Pollyannish view that that we're all going to agree on everything um, or that any church body can like nail down perfect doctrine a hundred percent of the time altogether, something like that. Right. I just want to just this. Go ahead. Well, I, I was thinking of like Arthur Peepcorn, for instance, who's uh, one of the most fascinating people that was, and he wasn't even really involved with seminary. I mean, he was at the seminary, he'd been there for some time. He, um, and, um, you know, I'll, I'll refer our listeners to the class you taught us on CSL, uh, where you spend uh, uh, one of the sessions talking a lot about Peepcorn, but uh, interesting theologian. Um, as far as anyone could tell, I don't think he was really like, um, I don't think he was really uh, into the historical critical thing. I mean, he was a confessions professor. I mean, it's not like he taught scripture. Um I do have a Seminex um, right. uh, interview, though, a transcript of it, which I, I meant to revisit before this episode. The one time I was at Concordia Historic Institute, I yeah. wanted. Uh, but, you know, I, I wonder about like people like like him, because when you have, I think you have, and then you, you, I would conclude J.A.O. Preuss, the president of the Synod in there at the time as well, as kind of being caught up in something they didn't ask for. And I feel like there were people. Right. Uh, pushing this and egging this on. I mean, I, I was going to see if you wanted to talk a little bit about Herman Otten, um, but like there were people who were, I mean, not, um, you know, people who were uh, just 
really um, ready to fight a battle. Um, and I think part of it you see on the walkout side uh, because they were very much swept up in the, as Benet says, the romantic allure, the uh, it's almost, they had like a martyr complex possibly you could say of, um, you know, wanting to the, wanting the outside world to see them as, you know, basically standing in their ground by an oppressive synodical system coming after them or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And they also have people like Herman Naughton, who I think is kind of a nutcase, to be frank. Um, right. <laughs> so I'm just, yeah. you know, I'm wondering, there's a lot right. of people, well-meaning, well-intended people that just get caught up in the mix because you have these strong personalities that are involved with it, you know. Oh, you're absolutely right that the I need the I need to get in here for just a second because I have to yep. go in about two minutes, but uh, um uh, and I'll listen to the rest of the conversation uh, later. Um, but uh, on I I I've done a lot of thinking about um what it was like to be a student at the seminary at this time. Um, my predecessor at my current call actually um, is a seventy six grad, so he was in the midst of all of the us. And, you know, if you, if, if any of the three of us were to think about, um, you know, our time in seminary, you know, you have some professors that you just love. You have some professors that you don't care for. Um, but if you imagine your first, you know, you're at seminary, you really don't know much. You don't really have um, that of an ability to discern whether what you're being taught is is the truth or not and so you're in the seminary in the early 70s you go in there you don't know much you're trying to figure things out and this very charismatic professor that you really like is saying something that turns out to not be true and then you find all of these outsiders are trying to to get this prof you love fired, uh, you're not gonna necessarily respond to that in the in the most positive way, and uh, you might get, as Drew just said, caught up in in things that you don't fully understand. And uh, and so, yeah, you had people who were true believers. You had people who knew that things were being taught that were were wrong. And then you probably had most people who were somewhere in between and uh, just upset that all this stuff was happening at their seminary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really important point, Charlie, that, that um, there is, uh, first of all, there's nothing that brings solidarity to one another than the feeling that you're being persecuted. And, uh, and the faculty as a whole and the student body as the whole felt that in spades. Uh, and in part, there was some intentional rhetoric to make that feeling even more pronounced. Um, but in the, in the immediate years leading up to the, to the walkout and, um, and a lot of people, especially on the student side, changed their minds afterwards. Uh, there was all sorts of people that came back either right away or a year or two later or um, and so it really wasn't you know it wasn't 80 percent of a liberal student 
body and and ninety um, percent of a liberal uh, faculty. That wasn't it at all. Um, you had uh, you had a handful of people, like Charlie said, that were kind of true believers in this, mm -hmm. and then um, and then people that eventually became even more convinced in that direction after they went to Seminex. But um, there was you mentioned the personalities. I think we would have had a conflict no matter what. Yeah. Um, but uh, certainly the shape of it is shaped by some key personalities, including the president of the seminary at the time, who was just very, um, very powerful in terms of his, uh, 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 his rhetorical ability, his, uh, he was, he was called the, the eighth wonder of the PR world. I mean, he just, he was excellent. Uh, he could just speak off the cuff and it was beautiful. Um, but he was also extremely stubborn. Uh, and and idealistic and romantic and um, and there was no there was no strategy and so he just kind of and eventually the faculty because he defended the faculty um, they lined up behind him as their lead I mean he truly inspired a leadership sort of mentality and he led them right off the cliff and um, you know they would it was interesting uh, one person interviewed. Um, some of the faculty and students doing his own research on this. And he asked them, what, why didn't you, do you ever think you'd go back? Like, why didn't you turn around and come back to the seminary? Um, I mean, what would have stopped you from coming back? And uh, the response was, well, we never thought about that. We were just always forward, forward, forward. We never thought about the possibility of coming back. And the same question by the student was posed to the uh, the president of the synod at the time, J.O. Preuss. And they asked him the same thing. He says, what did you think? Um, they the, the students then the faculty said they never thought about coming back. And he said, that's all I thought about every day was what happens if they come back because there was nothing he could do, you know? Um, and so um, it sounds very draconian and political, but they actually just sort of, they actually whipped themselves into a titty and, and left. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately we weren't really able, and that was, you know, even the faculty that stayed didn't want to see that happen. They didn't want them gone. They wanted them back to work out things with them and come to a consensus eventually. But right. yeah, that, that's where it well, went. It was like the, uh, the pastor I referred to earlier, who was uh, my grandparents pastor who went there. It was his first year seminary when the walkout happened, his roommate left. Um, and he always like thought that, you know, he hoped that there'd be a future generation of, you know, whatever scholars, pastors who would look back and, you know, cause, and, and, and say the things I guess that we're saying because, or that at least you just said, maybe not to call people nutcases like I, like I just did. So rest in peace. <laughs> right, right. But, um, you know, uh, cause everyone was so caught up in the heat of the moment, like, uh, in the in that war that battle that time leading up and culminating in in the seminary walkout and so um people yeah made their decisions um and lived with them and lived with the scars of them and whatever and so um yeah there wasn't it, it just seemed like a mix a bad recipe of strong personalities and for our listeners, I'll put in show notes, you know, uh, references to the books and uh, the CSL class, Dr. Herman taught, but also some of the books. I, I know like the Berkey book talked a lot about Herman Otten, not that yeah. I wanted him, but like he was very much, you know, 
less of the scholarly type, more of um caught up in a reactionary spirit against things that were going on socially and politically in the 60s um, and had been training as a Missouri Senator pastor for our listeners to get a little bio of him. And he started Christian News, which is very, you know, very tabloid-ish. And he, he had, um, he built network with conservatives in Missouri said, but a lot of them like didn't, a lot of them, from what I understand, I mean, this just isn't Berkey. This is just my sense of like anyone reasonable, which I, Jack Price, I've, I've watched the, interviews with him um i've tried to see every angle of this and i see how a lot of the synodical position i won't call them conservatives to say this the, the people that were of the synodical position that were very concerned that was what was going on in the seminary a lot of them you know kept, they kept their distance from people characters like criminal because they knew um that's they didn't want to be associated with that type of you know right and I told I mean I'd do the same thing and so um you know you have that side and then you have yes the people Benet mentioned in that article of you know people a lot of the people walking out who ended up essentially they did literally form their own small little church body in addition to their own seminary mm -hmm. eventually went into the ELCA along with two other uh Lutheran bodies um it was really that group as that you alluded to earlier dr herman when you said that they kind of drove um elca to, to certain extremes and so you just have a lot of like strong personalities and i think that's you know um it's it's so complicated the story of seminex and i hope we uh in this episode we did you know <laughs> i don't think there'll be any justice in this in, on this side of the eschaton given <laughs> situation but um you know, I do appreciate you coming on and talking a, a little bit about it. I know we didn't get it into all the chronology um, of it. And, and of course, I think this is more so just a, a ref, more of a reflective kind of talk on it and with some of the background and maybe just some pointers for where our listeners can go to from here. But I guess give us some recommendations. I mean, aside from your class, you talk about what are some good, and they can be books, but just like, places to go to, things to read, um, interviews, any any type of things that you can kind of point us to as far as getting more of the story um, of Seminex. Yeah, well, it's, it's um, uh, I mean, there's been a variety of books and every one of them is uh, kind of filled with a certain kind of bias. So you've got to read more than one. Mm -hmm. um, just and just kind of know where people are coming from. I think one of the books we didn't mention, but one we couldn't do the kind of class that we do without it, and that is John Tejan's own memoirs on this. Yeah. John Tejan was the seminary president who was, you know, kind of spearheaded this, and it's very much a memoir. It's very much his position, but it's an extremely helpful book to get kind of a feeling and the geist of the thing, the, the whole personality stuff that we were talking about here is is uh, is filled in in that um but yeah i mean you just have to read uh, read a variety of sources you mentioned berkey's book which is much more interested in um the po the the cultural and political nature of the missouri senate he's not really interested in the theological issues and that's all right i mean that's that's there isn't a best history book on anything it's it's always a, a, a for a particular vantage point that was my issue with the berkey book is that he he almost reduced it to a political cultural battle and like i'm glad he named that element 
but he's really not. I mean, like Charlie went over the some of the bad implications from like the exercise of like historical criticism with like gospel narratives and what Jesus even said or did, or if we can even be sure, sure about it. Like Berkey did not touch on any of that. He just saw it as well. It's just a suppression of like academic freedom for people to discuss those things. So, well, you can go to Concordia Seminary today and the exegetes will discuss those things, but they'll also probably, I imagine, give you a compelling case for why you can trust the reliability of like you know, right. Jesus walking with water or something. Right. Uh, yeah. And I think I think what colored Berkey's treatment of that, it was largely shaped by his interaction with Herman Otten, as you mentioned. And the, we used to call it before it was published, we called it the Otten dissertation. Yeah, because um, it was an enormous amount of reliance upon a guy who, uh, you know, ironically, you, sh you should have done a little historical criticism of Herman Otten. Um, yeah, right. He's in a completely very, very biased source um, and, and a kind of a quirky one at that. And so, uh, I mean, it's it's a helpful book. By, mm. But um, yeah, I mean, there's just so many things in play and you almost need a book with a chapter on each of those things uh, without just kind of layer on layer. Um, but I think also if you just, you can find look, little video segments of the event. I mean, I think we, we show as many pictures and videos of this as possible to give people a feel for it. You can always sort of look at it. As and this, is the, this is the Concordia class, which I'm putting the link up to, right? Sure. Sure. And um, so I think, um, you know, there's there with any kind of history, there's a lot of uh, empathy that has to be involved. You have mm -hmm. to try to understand um, uh, there are objective issues, but there's also sort of the subjective why people get caught up in this sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, any good history of it tries to deal with both. Um, so and then, you know, because people uh, people were deeply affected by this, I think. Um, uh I think it's the empathy is not just for understanding history, but ultimately for understanding people that you disagree with uh, in the church. I mean, you can see where it gets you unless you uh, start treating people like Christians rather than as opponents. Yeah. And uh, you have to, you have to deal with substantive disagreement. There's no doubt about it, but um, once you give up, once you do the devil's deal that the means justifies the end, you've, you've, you've left the church and gone somewhere else. So, yeah. yeah. Well, Eric, thank you. Um, I would also add the the Zimmerman book. Was it Paul? What was Zimmerman's first name? Paul Paul Zimmerman, right? And that's uh, a, that's a helpful. He was deeply involved in that as a um, yeah as someone who interviewed all of the faculty. That's right. Yeah, for our listeners, uh, if the fact finding committee, which was the group appointed by the synodical president, um, to interview and just check the pulse of the seminary and to see what indeed was being taught. Um, that's a very helpful resource uh, for that's kind of an expensive book. Uh, I think you can, if you live by a seminary, they may have it, especially a Lutheran one. Uh, they may have it, but um, I thought it, it was good. Um, I mean, I guess I, I, you, I recognize the, the synodical bias of it, but also he, there were things in there that you will not find in a lot of Seminex uh, writings just because they come from, you know, the other side, unfortunately. And so um the stuff about the 1970 was it 71 the um convention this right this, had a convention and basically there was um there was some really kind of dirty tactics being played that um from the you know uh for lack of a better term liberal side that you just would not have gotten in in some of the other works and so 
it really, it's just one of those things like Dr. Herman, like you said, it's, it's uh, one of those things that you really need to uh, look at it from all the different angles in order to arrive to, I mean, it's like the old saying goes, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And, um, you know, it helps to, to explore all those for people that want a more of a knowledge of it. And so. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're right. And I think uh, it's an event why we like to deal it too, is it's just one of the more complicated contemporary events uh, that becomes a way to think clearly about things and not get caught up in, in emotions. And, and it uh, so it's a I good even, exercise. I even found myself, I mean, this is one of the few episodes I even found myself a little bit caught up in. It's just, I mean, it's, it's that recent, you know, right. Uh, and I know you coming on with your position, your connection to people from all sides of this, I'm sure. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a delicate issue. And so I think the next time we have you on, we should love to, we should have you talk about Martin Luther for the Reformation. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. 500 years in the past, we're distant, we're far enough right. away from it that. Uh, yeah, there, there's nothing emotional when thinking about Martin Luther, right? He didn't write anything controversial, so that, that should be fine. Nothing at all. Martin Luther yeah. was completely an uncontroversial figure. So. Yeah, that would be a delight. <laughs> that would be fun. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Herman. We um, we, we loved having you on, and uh, I think I see Charlie ducked out a little bit early. We knew he had to, and but um, our listeners will catch him again because he's he's with us a bit. So God bless, Dr. Herman, and thank you. Yep. You're welcome. Pleasure.